Welcome to Living Truth Radio, a ministry of Living Truth Christian Fellowship with Pastor Michael Lance. It's our goal to build up believers and to reach out with God's truth to all people. And now, here's Pastor Michael. Okay, 1 Samuel is where we are. We're going verse by verse through the book. We are in chapter 3 tonight. God's speaking and God's calling. When God speaks, how do we recognize the voice of God in the midst of all the chatter and stuff that goes on in this world? That's what we're going to look at tonight. And uh, before we do, let's pray one more time. Father, as we now get into your word, we thank you for the inspired word of God, which is profitable for every area of our spiritual life. And we are grateful that it will rebuke and it will reprove and exhort us and encourage us, encourage us that we might have hope. Thank you that you are the God of hope. Thank you that your word, your Torah, the Old and New Testament is filled with instruction. It helps us to hit the mark. That's really what Torah means, to hit the mark. Our sinful nature in it, we miss the mark so often. But as we study your word, you, you kind of set the compass right and you help our, our hearts and souls to be informed as to what's really important that we might be instructed, that we might uh, know your way, know your voice, know your will, and do it. And so tonight, Lord, that's what we desire. To hear your call tonight, to see how Samuel's call might apply to our own lives, and to give you the glory that you deserve as you call us to yourself. We're so grateful. We pray your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So at the end of 1 Samuel a really dire prophecy is made to the house of Eli. An unidentified prophet uh, called a man of God, he comes to the priest and he says these words. This is one of the verses I pointed out to you as one of my life verses. First uh, Samuel 2, look at verse 30, the very end of the verse. It says, Far be it from me, for those who honor me, I will honor and those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. Now the sons of Eli were not honoring God. They were doing the very opposite. They were making a mockery of holy things. And God decided that he was going to kill them. Their names were Hophni and Phinehas. And as much as Eli was a man that served in the temple and appeared on many levels to be faithful, the one thing among other things that we could talk about tonight, that he failed to do is to rebuke his own children. He was not a good father. He did not restrain them. He, he did plead with them, but he only took it so far. He really didn't stop them from the evil that they were doing. This will be a sign, look at 2.34, to you which shall come concerning your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. On the same day both of them shall die. But I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and in my soul. And I will build him an enduring house. And he will walk before my anointed always. There are some who believe this is Samuel. Others think it points ultimately to Jesus Christ. And it shall come about that everyone who is left in your house shall come and bow down to him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and say, please assign me to one of the priest's offices so that I might 
I may eat a piece of bread. We will see through the lineage of Eli that uh, his whole family will be supplanted. There will be no priest remaining that uh, is uh, of the house of Eli. Now that leads us into chapter 3, verse 1. By contrast, if you just continue reading at the end of chapter 2 and move into chapter 3, now the boy Samuel, a boy means youth. And uh, the fact that uh, tradition says that he's about 12 years old, we don't really know for sure, but Josephus said he was about 12 at this point, so for whatever that's worth. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord before Eli. And word from the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were infrequent. Let me read from the ESV. It says, Now the young man Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli, under his tutelage. He was something like an apprentice. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days, and there was no frequent vision. Now, I don't have to tell you that as we look at kind of the national picture of the United States, if we, as we look at the church culture, I'm hearing more and more that the word of God is rare in many places. Um, that the word of God is not being preached the way that we would think that it should be preached because it's pretty simple. If the word of God inherently has power in it, if it's imbued with God's power, then the best thing that a preacher or pastor could do is preach it. Amen? So there's no need for me to sit here and pontificate on subjects and, and give you 20-minute sermonettes and all that stuff. What we really need is where the power lies, and the power is in God's Word. But the Word was rare in those days. Two centuries later, Amos the prophet would write these words, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. And people, Amos 8, 11, and 12, will stagger from sea to sea and from the north even to the east. They will go to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. Amos 8, 11, and 12. In the short history following this time, there would continue to be a famine in the land for the word of God. And the word of God would be rare. And Amos's uh, prophetic words actually say that people would search for it and not be able to find it. Now, I hear a lot of reports in my own pastorate in terms of people that uh, attend Living Truth or come through here and fill out a questionnaire. And I do hear reports that sometimes there is a famine when you seek the word of God. I don't know why that is. I can't explain all the reasons why my brother pastors are doing what they're doing. A lot of them, frankly, have gone to schools that have given them a notebook on how to do church. And they get a notebook and they're told, if you do it this way, people will come. You will fill the seats and you will have a successful church. And this is the model. So you follow this, you do the barbecues, you do the whatever... You do the three-point sermons, you, you, know, you fold in this or that, sermon in a box, whatever you want to call it, and they will come. And I have to tell you that the churches who practice these kinds of things have had great numeric growth. Many of them have. But then some of them have come back and, and they've done an assessment of their own ministry. Uh, there was a big church in L.A. that did this recently. I think they had 12,000 members 
there was uh, the church in Chicago, uh, Bill Hybels, what, what's the name of it again? Willow Creek. And uh, they went back and they assessed the depth of discipleship. I think they even wrote a book on their own church. So they had done this experiment and it really started with Hybels and company. And what they did is they started going, they hit the streets of Chicago and they started doing surveys door to door and they wanted to know why unchurched people were not coming to church. So they, they went with a survey and they had a list of questions and the questions were all pointing towards this direction. Mr. and Mrs. Jones, you are not a churchgoer. Why do you not go to church? And what would make you come to church? Now, I would say that their intentions were noble. They felt that the church was irrelevant. They felt that the church was in some sense dying. And whoever you know can be the judge of that, of course, that's all subjective. But they, they did these surveys and they found a constant theme in their surveys. People were saying they felt church was boring. They felt it, it was irrelevant to their life. They did not want to hear any more about hell. They didn't want to hear any more about sin. And if the church would add a cert, certain things to what they did, then maybe they would consider coming. So a question could be something like this. So you like ping pong, Mr. Jones. So if we have ping pong tournaments, will you come to church? Oh, yeah. So they wrote that down. Uh, and by the way, while we're talking, I'd like sermons that are no longer than a half an hour because I have things to do and people to see. So if the sermons are no more than a half an hour, you'll come, right? And then Mrs. Jones chimed in with what she wanted. And then eventually the church was built towards the seeker. This is what the unchurched person said they wanted to see in a church. So they built the church around the data from unbelieving people who would now define what the church should be. And so it was, it was back to the old marketing scheme, give the people what they want and they will come. There was only one problem. When people started to come, they were coming for the wrong reasons. They were getting what they wanted. They were hearing what they wanted to hear instead of what they needed to hear. And when the assessment was done on the... Um, how well these churches had done, they found that they were a mile wide and an inch deep. There were all these people coming, but they were not true disciples of Christ because they were just getting fluff. They were getting their ears tickled. Now, it's not to say that in these kinds of settings there are not committed believers, but the point is, is that it was, it was a compromise from Jump Street, from the word go. It was all set up this way. Now, I just want to say a word to those of you who struggle with some of these issues. There is nothing wrong with a church being seeker-sensitive. Every church ought to be sensitive to a seeker truly walking in the door to know God. There is absolutely nothing wrong with that. But churches cannot be seeker-centered. A woman called uh, Greg Kokel's program, and she said, I'm struggling with my home church. They're doing 20-minute sermons. I'm not getting anything out of it. There's no depth. And they keep telling us to hold on because Sunday mornings are about unbelievers. But the typical survey says that on a Sunday morning, usually about 2% or less of the people sitting in an average Christian church are unbelievers. 98% are already Christians. And what do they need? They need to be fed the Word of God so they can go out into the world and make a difference, right? Right? 
So, but it got flopped. So all the 98% of the people were told, you guys need to chill out while we minister to the 2% that might be here. That's, that's how it got inverted. The, the whole model of the church was supposed to be a holy huddle so we could equip you and get you, you know, filled up so you could go out into that world and make a difference and evangelize in your workplace and evangelize in your school. That's where unbelievers are. You know, not a whole lot of them are streaming into the church. I'm not saying they can't come, but you, you understand what I mean. So this kept going on and on. So this woman says, but I'm staying at my church because I believe I can be a change agent in my church. And I believe that I can convince my pastor that he needs to change his model. And Greg said, just listen to what you just said. So you're going to a church and you think your sole job to remain there is to change the mind of the leadership about how they do church. Now, does that sound right to you? I thought the leadership of a church was supposed to equip you. You think your call is to equip them. There's something wrong with this. And the lady went, oh, (laughs) I see your point. Well, you know, for whatever reason, there is an epidemic in the church, and the epidemic is there's a famine for the word of God. Now, I know some of you walk into a place like this on a Wednesday night, and you may not be used to in-depth Bible teaching. Some of you are getting more used to it. Some of you were on a long, long journey. Somebody, please, open the Bible. You know, sometimes I just hear that. It was so refreshing, Pastor Michael, when you opened the Bible. I'm like, what? (laughs) Yeah, when when you said, turn in your Bible to this book, so we can go through it. Wow. Anyway. Amen. So, a famine. Now, it is easy for a modern-day churchgoer to take for granted how accessible God's Word is to us today. But it all, hasn't always been that way. Some of you know the stories from church history where people were burned at the stake to try to get the common person a copy of this book. There are countries right now where this book is illegal. People have to smuggle this book into certain countries so people can actually read the Word of God. You see, this, this is something where, as, as a uh, person who wants to be thankful, man, just when you, when you just are able to open your Bible in a place like this, just be grateful. You meet somebody at a restaurant for coffee and you can do a Bible study, be grateful. Because it's not something that we ought to take for granted. It hasn't always been that way. Now the sons of Eli, they had contempt for the Lord. They didn't care much about God's word. And I think the fact that there were no frequent visions, uh, 1 Samuel 3 verse 1, uh, was directly related to the corrupt leadership. I want you to turn for a second to Luke chapter 3. Luke 3. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So that's the third book of the New Testament. Luke 3. As we have an introduction to um, the ministry of John the Baptist, we get some historical markers. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, one of the amazing things about the Bible is it will give you introductions to sections and tell you who the secular leaders were of the day so you could mark the time In other words, you could compare this particular entry to secular history and see if they match. 
Luke 3, 1 says, Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, so there you have the time marker, Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Arturia, and Trachonitis and Licinius was tetrarch of Abilene. In the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, so now you have both a political and religious leadership, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he came into all the districts around the Jordan, Luke 3.3, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It is interesting to note that in Luke 3, the word of God doesn't come to Annas and Caiaphas, who are the ruling high priests of the day. And you know why the word of God didn't come to them? Because they were corrupt. Because they didn't care about God. Because they had gotten their positions through intrigue and through political maneuvering. Because they were ripping off the people. Because they were in league with Rome. And they, they didn't care a whit for the things of God. They were in the positions, but that's all they were by name. And God's word passed them by and went to a man named John, who was, we know he was sanctioned from the time he was, his birth was announced that he was going to prepare the way of the Lord. And so he did. I just want you to notice that in some of the dark times when there's uh, corrupt political and religious leadership, the word of God comes, but it comes in unexpected places. John's out there, And he is uh, eating locusts and wild honey, which was a cereal of the day. I'm just kidding. It wasn't, but... (laughs) Have you ever seen what a locust looks like up close? It takes some masculinity to eat a locust. (laughs) Today we did a Bible class and... I tell you often, I teach a uh, one-hour class at a uh, public elementary school. It's legal in the state of California to, to do um, what's called Christian release time or Bible release time. Some of you did it when you were kids. Barry's here who heads up that ministry. We are in eight schools now, and we need more teachers. So Barry, raise your hand right there. If you want to make a difference in the world and go into the public schools legally and teach kids a Sunday school lesson for an hour during their normal school day. Talk to Barry. Anyway, I was there today, and that was our lesson. It was on John the Baptist and um, Janice. Janice, is is she here tonight? Anyway, that's Janice's husband. (laughs) She made a little snack that looked like a locust. And she put some honey on it. It was so awesome. And I told the kids, eat the head first. Just bite the head right off. And some of them were scared and I got to eat their locusts. It was, it was glorious, glorious thing. It's my plan all along. Psalms 74, 8 and 9 says, they said in their hearts, we will crush them completely. They burned every place where God was worshipped in the land. We are given no miraculous signs, no prophets are left, and none of us know how long this will be. Psalm 74, 8 and 9. Jeremiah 1, the words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, 
Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you and I've appointed, and I've appointed you a prophet to the nations. God uh, often does this. He, he will uh, look into a societal situation and he will pick out an individual. Even when things are dark, even when situation is dim, and he will choose that one to be a vessel. Now back up for a second. Now we saw that we opened with the story of Hannah, and she was barren, and we and we're wondering what's God up to, right? And she's year after year she goes to Shiloh for the festival, and Panina, the pain keeps giving her a bad time, and she's crying out to the Lord, and finally she gives birth to this child. But she's so desirous to have a son that she says, Lord, if you give me the son, I'll give him back to you. But could she have understood that that whole situation to dedicate Samuel would cause a new era to come into Israel where a prophet would be set aside. He would be the anointer of King Saul and then King David. He would set the tone for the nation. She couldn't have known that in her dark hours when she was barren and broken and, and beaten down by life. And I told you sometimes in life what happens is a season of barrenness will precede a, a season of blessing. And year by year, remember she made that little robe for him and she had to make it bigger every year. And she went and, and she saw him growing, but she couldn't have realized what God had planned for him. And, and I mentioned to you in previous messages in First Samuel that sometimes when we're concerning ourselves about the kingdom of God, we have to try to look even beyond our own generation. That's hard to do, but you know, to imagine maybe what your children or grandchildren might accomplish as you pray for them. Now Samuel is being uh, spoken to by the Lord, uh, as we'll see in a second. It happened at that time that as Eli was lying down, so we have the rare visions, Eli is lying down in his place. Now his eyesight, 1 Samuel 3.2, had begun to grow dim and he could not see well. Some of the people in the room say amen because you have those little glasses everywhere. And I can I feel your pain. And I'm not even I'm not going to make fun of you. And the NIV says Eli could barely see. You're going to notice that in this particular text some of the descriptions of the physical ailments of Eli and the surroundings where Samuel and Eli are found are descriptive of more than just a physical situation. They actually speak of a spiritual reality. Sometimes in the Bible, like in John 9, there was a man born blind. And that whole issue is about spiritual perception. The blind man actually was the one who could see, and those who could see were actually blind, John chapter 9. In John 5, there's a man by the pool of Bethesda, and he's been sick for a long time. And, it, and it, he's in that condition because of some sin that he's committed. And Jesus says to him, do you want to get well? There's a woman in the book of Luke who's been bent over for years and years and years. She can't straighten up. And Luke tells us a spirit is involved in that. And in some way she's bent over. And she gets healed on the Sabbath day. I called that message when I taught from Luke, straightened out on the Sabbath. The deeper picture was Jesus was trying to teach that healing on the Sabbath was actually quite appropriate. He would say to them, you know, your animal falls in a pit on the Sabbath, you'll go get him out. But this woman who's been bent over for years and years, you, you're bothered that I straightened her out on the Sabbath day? What's your problem? 
But a spirit was involved in that. There was a spiritual issue behind that. Now, not, that's not always true when it comes to a physical ailment. We know that. But, but here, Eli, he, he was losing his sight. And that was true of his spiritual life. You know, some people in life, unfortunately, as they go on in years, they, they tend to lose spiritual perspective. That's not who you want to be. Amen? Thank you for listening to today's program. If you'd like to listen to this message again, learn more about our church in Corona, or to access archived messages, go to livingtruthradio.org and click on the church tab. You can follow us on Instagram at livingtruthcorona or download the Living Truth Christian Fellowship app on Apple and Android devices. Living Truth Radio is a listener-supported ministry. You can partner with us by donating at livingtruthradio.org. In 1 Samuel chapter 3, as Samuel ministers before the Lord, and I think that's a great picture that he was ministering before the Lord. And, you know, there, there are ways in our Christian life that we can bless the Lord. And uh, as uh, Samuel was doing that and doing that with the discipleship and leadership of Eli, um, something amazing happens. Samuel goes and lies down in the temple of the Lord. He's uh, where the Ark of God was or near where the Ark of God was. And God does something amazing. Um, the Lord calls to Samuel. Uh, in verse 4, the first calling is Samuel, and of course he says, here I am, and he doesn't know it's the voice of God. And he runs to Eli, and did you call me? He says, nope, I didn't call you. Go back to sleep, boy. That's a loose paraphrase, but I think you get the idea. Again, the Lord called Samuel, and he went to Eli, and again he said, I didn't call you, I didn't call you. go back to bed. Samuel did not yet know the Lord, which is quite interesting. There wasn't a personal relationship with the Lord yet. And yet the Lord was calling to Samuel. Samuel had been dedicated by his mother Hannah and the Lord called a third time and he arose, he went to Eli and Eli now discerns that the Lord is calling the boy. And he says these famous words, go lie down, verse 9, and it shall be if he calls you that you shall speak and say, Lord, um, for thy servant is listening. And so Samuel went and lie down and uh, the Lord came, he stood, he called to him as the other time, Samuel, Samuel, a double Samuel. And Samuel said, speak, for thy servant is listening, thy servant hears. You know, all throughout the Bible, uh, in many, many places, we hear these words. Out of the lips of Jesus, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. In Revelation 2 and 3, we have a little addition. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The Bible gives us this picture of ears that can hear, ears that are unstopped, ears that are open to the voice of the Master. Thank you for listening to today's program. Our mission is to get the truth of God's Word out. This is our passion. We want to impact as many people as possible. And we have an opportunity to expand this radio program, and we need you, the listener, to partner with us in prayer and in giving. 
You can give to our ministry through our website at livingtruthcorona.org. That's livingtruthcorona.org.